Hey fam, this is your host, Amber Preston, and this is Family Drama. Some of the content in today's episode may evoke your own memories of traumatic events. We do not wish to cause anyone distress and hope you find someone in your life with which to share your thoughts and feelings, someone who can help you on your own journey to healing. Today's podcast has discussions of suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. So last time you referred to Dr. Judith Herman's book, The Trauma and Recovery, which explores the psychological effects of the trauma from all kinds of events. You mentioned the idea of captivity and that Herman refers to captivity not just as the literal confinement, like, for example, political prisoners. Captivity in the sense of domestic abuse includes controlling a person's entire world, particularly the access to other people. How did that happen in your case? You were going to school and you all went to church every week. Did you have access to people you trusted? Well, this is a gradual process. Mm-hmm. Remember that I mentioned that Chalmer made mom quit her job mm-hmm. when they first got married, and then he got her a job at Western Electric? Mm-hmm. That was really the beginning. That was because he was paranoid and jealous. He began to control her life. He could keep an eye on her that Mm. way and control who she talked to, who she saw. And then, of course, he began to insist that she not talk to the neighbors or her friends that she had before they were married. The isolation. Right. Mm -hmm. And then after he beat her so severely that first time, he made promises to her that it wouldn't happen again and that he would tell her stuff Like, this is really your fault because these are your mistakes. You know, you were flirting, and when you flirt with people, that causes me to become violent. So he had this warped sense of logic. And as kids, we rarely were allowed to go anywhere outside of school. We weren't involved in extracurricular activities that involved other kids until we were teens. We didn't invite other kids over, so we were really quite isolated as kids. So you're confused and embarrassed and you begin to make excuses for not being able to do things after school or regular things that normal kids do. And one important point is too to remember that I think I brought up last time is that constant threat that hangs over your head that if you say anything to anyone that he was going to kill you. Mm. You know, so naturally we never said anything to anyone for fear of his wrath. Even if we had felt like we could trust somebody, we never said anything to pastor or, you know, anybody like that. So constant verbal and physical abuse at the same time of being isolated from everyone just destroys your sense of self-worth. And that was like that for all of us. After we moved to Lancaster a few years into the marriage, Billy got much worse with his periods of amnesia. Chala remained reserved, and I don't remember too much 
about Jim because he took a part-time job after school working in the locker room at the YMCA. I think in this way, he was like, you know, able to escape somewhat. Mm -hmm. I was in the process of teaching myself to constrict my emotions and thoughts, and perhaps I should rephrase that. (laughs) The voice in my head Mm. was teaching me to control all of this. As a result of Billy's first suicide attempt when he was in junior high, Mm -hmm. the school system's utter lack of understanding and ability to deal with him and what to do about him, they insisted that he get psychiatric help. And they pretty much expelled him until he Mm. was able to come back to school and not, so to speak, have amnesia. So he was institutionalized in the youth building at the Columbus Psychiatric Hospital, where he was first diagnosed with dissociative states. That's before they called it multiple personality or dissociative identity disorder. And it was here where the doctors suggested family group therapy. Oh, my God. (laughs) I can only imagine how that went. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Did you guys go? Well, yes. We met one time (laughs) as a family, although I never spoke at all. Well, at least I don't remember speaking at all. Chalmer was rather subdued, it seemed like, and said that he just spoke casually. And he just said that Billy was a lazy troublemaker. And he told the doctor that he didn't think he, meaning Chalmer, Mm -hmm. he didn't think he needed therapy and everything would be fine if we just did what we were told. Of course, he blamed mom for being too soft on us. And you could see that when mom tried to talk or try to reason, you could just see the fury rise in his eyes and he would get really quiet and frown and you could just see it. And he would just refuse to go back again. After Billy was in the hospital several weeks, the doctor informed her that Billy was never going to get better unless Chalmer was removed from the house. Mom wasn't capable on any level to make Chalmer leave, so the abuse continued. Seriously, she was not emotionally capable. She wasn't financially capable. That was just not going to happen. Right. I just continued to, in order to survive, numb my feelings and and thoughts, and I could never trust how he was going to behave. So, yeah, I was in a constant state of fear and vigilance. I remember several times during these episodes of anger and violence, he would rip the phone out of the wall so we couldn't call the police. (laughs) Landlines, of course. Right. (laughs) One time I was in the basement doing the laundry, and the basement stairs were just off the kitchen. And I could hear Chalmer beating Billy and throwing him into the kitchen table and Mom screaming at him, trying to get him to stop. The basement had a coal chute. I I tried climbing out of the coal chute, but I couldn't get the latch unhooked. I searched frantically around the basement and found a bent screwdriver on the floor near the furnace. And I was able to pry open the coal chute, and I ran to the neighbors, the Lavenders, and I begged them to call the police. I remember later when things calmed down, my dad, meaning the voice in my head, Mm -hmm. he told me to hide the screwdriver in the floor joist near the coal chute in case I ever needed it again. So I hid it up there where you couldn't see it. I did need it again several times. 
And when I left home, I took a screwdriver with me and I kept it in the bottom of my purse for years. Oh my God. For like protection? I just needed it. I do have to have like a little aside. What is a coal chute? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought about that after I said it. (laughs) Okay, in older houses, before gas or electric furnaces were available, the furnaces were run on coal. This house was on the outskirts of Lancaster, so Mm -hmm. it wasn't tied into the sewer system or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so every basement had this little square. It was about two foot wide iron door that opened. The coal truck would come up and they would deliver coal into the basement through a chute that was attached to the truck. So the furnace would run on coal. Well, by the time we lived in the house, the furnace had been converted to gas, but the door was still there, you know, and it just hooked shut. And I thought about this. When we were preparing for the Netflix documentary, I took the directors to Lancaster to show them the house that we lived at on Spring Street at 933 Spring Street. And it was vacant, which was weird. But the owners had landscaped and planted a bush in front of the coal chute. And I remember thinking, what the hell? What are they thinking? This is the only way out of the basement. I mean, what if there's a fire or something? And in my mind, I just utterly panicked. And I felt this anger. And I thought, they'll never be able to get out. And then I just felt sad. (laughs) That is the way I perceived my world as a child with, with all the confusion and the mixed messages. Naturally, my confidence in managing this environment was shattered. So controlling my thoughts and emotions became the primary goal. Remember, the original question is, how did you survive? I recall my father's voice teaching me this during recess, day after day. (laughs) On 15-minute morning recess, I would play with other kids quite normally, but on lunch recess, when the weather was nice, It was a longer recess. I would run way far out from the building because it sat on a very large property out into the field and I would sit or lay in the grass and I would stare up at the clouds. I was in sixth grade. I remember this specifically. Sixth grade was still at the elementary at the time. And I could hear my father's voice saying, now think of the saddest thing you can think of. And when you are just about to cry, shut it off. And it's going to be weird, but I would conjure up holding a dead puppy. Oh my, well, yeah, that <laughs> yeah, is literally the saddest thing yes, ever. I know, really. I know this sounds so weird, sorry, <laughs> to our audience, but that was always likely to do it because I just mm-hmm. loved animals, you know, and a dead puppy, I mean, seriously. Right. And so I would practice manipulating my emotions and he would say, good, good, to me. And now you can use this when he calls you a whore or a slut and tells you you can't do anything right and it would make you feel so bad, you can shut that off. And like anything you practice over and over again, I got really good at that. You were unpurposely numbing all of the feelings as a means of survival. Right. It's it's hard to grasp that any of your teachers or the police or anybody with any kind of authority in your life, why did they not do anything? Talk about the school's 
<laughs> lack of concern, major neglect. Like, what was going on in your junior and high school years? Okay. Remember that part of captivity includes a perpetrator, mm-hmm. Chalmer. That is not easily recognizable. You really have to understand that. They do not, nor did he, <laughs> wear T-shirts that say, I abuse my family. <laughs> so... In the 60s, common thought was a man's home is his castle. What goes on behind closed doors is his business only. All those cliches and idioms. And, you know, this was a period of time with strong patriarchal social norms. But Chalmers' power was secretive and authoritarian and sadistic. And by many outwardly appearances, he was friendly. He was a good old boy who often brought in treats to work and fresh produce, like I said, and and his co-workers at work. And you would not ever suspect the Methodist Mm. church-going man of the atrocities that he committed. Right. It's never the people you think it is. No. No. So they're they're your neighbors. Right. Not to make anybody paranoid. Right. (laughs) And yes, the police were called to our home, but the police who showed up were often the same drinking buddies of Chalmer. Mm. So that reinforced his ability to get away with this. I remember Officer Bruni, who was a neighbor that lived down the street from us, stood in our living room and said, you kids just need to behave better. He won't beat you if you keep your mouth shut and do what you're supposed to do. And... They were able to talk mom out of pressing charges, saying that we could all work this misunderstanding out. And mom, knowing that she couldn't financially live without a man or her own psychological dealings living without a man, it just didn't happen. And of course, the school system, they didn't have trained counselors or school psychologists or or even laws like they do today to deal with families in crisis, Mm -hmm. even if they knew the extent of the abusive home life. And I know, you know, as a teacher myself, I know those cues and I know that teachers knew, but probably just didn't know what to do. Right. It was really difficult to, to follow Billy and Chala in junior high and high school. Mm -hmm. Neither of them were academically inclined. And by high school, Billy was so damaged, he barely made it through. In fact, Mm -hmm. he did end up dropping out in his senior year and enlisting in the Navy. He was in constant trouble with the law. He was in and out of various hospitals and juvenile delinquent centers. Chala had gotten involved with recreational drugs, and she, in her high school years, came out of that really quiet shell and had a vast change in her personality. She started running with the Devil's Disciples, which is a motorcycle group like the Hells Angels, you know, equivalent. Right. Yeah. Hells Uh, Angels, Devil's Disciples. I know. You know, what do you do? You know, it's Lancaster. Lancaster. (laughs) You know, I know. The (laughs) off-brand. I know. I know. Aldi's version. (laughs) (laughs) Shoot. No. No, I love Aldi's. I know. I know. I know. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. It all sounds so bizarre. I mean, she gets her own episode, but anyway. (laughs) uh, So she was missing 
school, she nearly failed her senior year. The principal or the vice principal would often come and get me out of class and say, where's your brother? Where's your sister? Like I knew. And I think, though, for me, the worst thing is that the teachers thought I was, you know, cut from the same proverbial cloth. Mm. (laughs) Because what did they have to go on? Right. You know, two seriously messed up kids just the year ahead of me. I remember my ninth grade science teacher, Mr. Isinger. I remember him treating me like I had no right to be in his advanced class. Mm. And he said to me one time, and it was so embarrassing, I'm going to ask a question to someone who probably doesn't belong in this class and probably doesn't know the answer. Now, I think he thinks he was joking, but of course I was mortified. And he looked right at me and I answered the question, Heck yes. but you know, I was just crushed by that thought and horribly embarrassed. I somehow gathered the courage and I went up to him after class and I was so ready to cry and I was on the verge of tears. All I could say is, I'm not like them. And I couldn't say anything else. And he just said, well, we'll see. And, what a dick move. <laughs> I know, science teacher in the 70s. And I thought, okay, okay, okay. I got all A's in his class. Yes, <laughs> you know, did. Yes, I did. But in a way, yeah, it, it, it did challenge me. Mm-hmm. And so I get the social norms. They have changed from those times. And the point is that captivity and perpetrators of this kind of violence walk among us camouflaged as perfectly normal, conventional people. You know, they go to work, they go to church, they socialize with others. They're often well-liked. We may read them as maybe standoffish or private, and all the while they're committing atrocities, just horrible crimes. I mean... How else could someone like Ariel Castro keep three women physically locked in his basement for 10 years in Cleveland? Remember that? Just saying. Why didn't anybody know? May 6, 2013, the gritty heartland city of Cleveland witnessed a miracle. Amanda told the police, I ain't just the only one. It's some more girls up in that house. Gina DeJesus returns here. She is indeed home. Michelle Knight was never on our radar at all. Police arrested who owns the home is 50. Their abductor, it turns out, was a deranged school bus driver. Ten years is about the length of time that Chalmer was married to your mom. In all of those years, is there any time that you remember was happy or you felt like somewhat of a normal family? (laughs) Well, that was our normal. If normal and abnormal can be used interchangeably, it was abnormal until I was in junior high. Right. I thought we were normal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was what was abnormal. Right. Early in their marriage, I remember during that love bomb phase, you know, that happens in in marriages like this. I remember driving all the way to Miami to visit mom's sister, Aunt Jo, so she could meet Chalmer and Chala, you know, as we became the 
the Milligan family. And I remember that we played with our cousins there like normal kids. Again, this was way, way early on and Chalmers seemed or presented as normal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what we would say. I remember on the way back, we stopped at Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, which is a massive, you know, national park, a state park or something like that. And we were all dressed in black shorts with red shirts. And I know. Did you have like matching shirts? Yes, like we were all matching. The, Mil Milligan, the Milligan family, family vacation. Yes, that's right. Sick. That's what it was. Yeah, well, sick now when you right. think about it. But well, yeah. it looked like, oh, look at that solid, happy family right. from outward appearances. It makes me so cringy right now just <laughs> yeah, thinking about this. I know. We stopped at the gift shop and look out Mountain Tennessee and Sea Rock City. Anybody who's from that area, you all know what I'm talking about. It's everywhere. And Chalmer bought a wooden paddle that had the words, quote, heat for the seat on it with a picture of a boy being spanked. You Okay, wait. <laughs> okay. You, you stop at the gift shop and the one thing he picks up is something to beat you with. <laughs> yes. Right on brand. <laughs> right. right on brand for him. Didn't know it at the time. You know, so yep. you think that he would have hung it behind the door with a with no. a rubber hose? No, yeah, he didn't. That was kept on top of the refrigerator because that was quicker access, <laughs> and and it was used regularly. And it was a constant reminder of fear. Paddle on top of the refrigerator. So, yeah. So there's that. And I remember going on picnics a few times to a place called Lazy Acres with Chalmers' side of the family. And there would be, you know, lots of drinking and grilling and fishing and stuff like that. We'd play with Chalo's cousins. But as those times wore on, I felt guarded and ill at ease all the time. I particularly hated being in the car or the back of the truck with somebody that was drinking. I knew early on that fear. And that if you moved the wrong way, you know, he, he could behave and you start reading his body language. And so you knew if he got upset that he wouldn't maybe lash out in the midst of other people. He would wait till you got home. Oh. So you constantly felt this hyper vigilance mm -hmm. uh, and just waiting for what would happen. So it really wasn't until I was in junior high when I started hearing kids during lunch. I would hear kids talk about going to birthday parties and having slumber parties, which are sleepovers in, right. in you guys' terms. I would have friends at school that I would sit with at lunch and talk to and I would listen to. And I had a friend who invited me to her house and I knew that I wouldn't be allowed to go, but her parents owned the local drive-in, mm -hmm. drive-in theater, you know, cars at a movie theater. Right. Okay. Yes. Drive-in. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. So our audience knows drive-in during the time, still popular. There were two in Lancaster and they owned the one in the city. I told mom and Chow, Chalmer that Kathy, her name is Kathy, invited me to help her work at the concession stand because her parents own the concession stand. And I knew that if he thought I was working, that that would be okay. Right. So he said that I could help her on the weekends. And I said, so could I just spend the night at her house because it would be really late because they were double features. People wouldn't get right. home until like one in the morning. So I started being able to spend time at her house and that's where I started to realize that her family's interactions were very different mm. from the way ours were. And that I started seeing how really messed up our family was. Of course, I still 
was too afraid to tell anybody. And it was during this time, I was about 12, going on 13-ish or so, that I found out about my father's suicide. Mm. How did you find out? Well, I was ironing Chalmers' handkerchiefs, (laughs) and he started yelling at me for folding them the wrong way. And (laughs) I know, right? Of course. Yeah. Not even shocked. Could you do anything right? Right. Folding handkerchiefs. Handkerchiefs are square, first of all. You fold a square in half, either way, from right to left, up to down. It is going to turn into a rectangle. You fold it, it becomes a rectangle. You fold it again, and it should become a square, or it becomes another rectangle. You see what I'm saying? (laughs) And so you fold it to fold it to fold it, till it becomes a little three and a half inch square by three and a half. I know, it just makes absolutely no sense. But he was insistent that the second fold had to be a square, not a goddamn rectangle, you know? Like, why did it even matter? (laughs) He was just going to blow his nose into it anyway. I know, I know, I know. Nothing is logical Mm -hmm. (laughs) with Chalmer, but it mattered to him. And you see, this is the point of control and opportunity to uh, belittle or degrade or right. dehumanize. And anyway, mom tried to intervene and it led to his massive heat of argument. At some point in the argument, he blurted out, at least Chala's mom didn't kill herself like your little bastard's dad did. Oh my God. And up to this point, I had always been told that dad was really, mm-hmm. really sick and that he died. So I just thought it was a physical sickness. And I didn't know what a bastard was either. And so I don't remember having any outward emotion to this new information that was buzzing around in my head. And later, mom explained to me that that he had killed himself and how he did it with carbon monoxide and all, and that he really, really was sick in his mind. Life had been difficult in Miami and that he loved us, but everything was just too much. It was during this time and a few subsequent after that that another voice came into my head. Wait, what? 